0: This is Conducting Business, WQXR's show about the classical music industry. I'm Naomi Lewin. You're hearing the Young People's Chorus of New York City, recorded live in Japan last July. The music is credited to Mamoru Samurokochi, a man once dubbed Japan's Beethoven, but who admitted last week that he had been paying somebody else to write his music for nearly two decades. What's more, his ghostwriter also came forward to reveal that he had been paid rather little and that Samaraguchi's hearing disability was all an act. In a moment, we will get two views on the revelations on the Samaraguchi case, but first, joining us is Francisco Nunez, the artistic director and founder of the Young People's Chorus of New York City. The piece we've been hearing is Requiem Hiroshima, which you performed during a Japan tour last year. What was your reaction when you heard the news last week that its composer is not who everybody thought he was?
1: Well, I was very surprised. I was saddened, actually, because I had received texts and Snapchats from all the singers. They were just dumbfounded and upset, actually. He had won our hearts with the story. You know, it seems to me that music is always about the way you paint the picture around the actual music. And the picture was painted around Samaraguch. And NHK, uh, where he was a composer in residence, they asked us to sing this piece. And he wrote it for a young boy who was 15 years old who died from, I believe, leukemia, well, definitely based on cancer from the bombings that was inherited by family. So we felt the real connection being that we were singers age, ages 15 to 18. When we met him on stage after the performance, we were crying. And then he came backstage and worked with us. Of course, everybody was always surprised why he was able to walk up the stairs and he was able to give us, you know, and, and speak a little bit to us. We, wasn't, we weren't sure what was going on,
0: but we didn't pay too much attention to that. Did you ever have any doubts about his authenticity? Given no, the I'm look, not. you know, he's got that flowing hair and the sunglasses or the glasses,
1: Actually, no, we never, we never gave it any doubt that you know, we didn't understand it. We weren't sure if he was completely deaf or half deaf. We weren't sure if he was visually impaired or fully blind. That's the one part we never understood. and then we thought it was just uh, loss in translation and what we were understanding. And then when we did meet him, you know we all said, "Wow, he was able to see us, and he was able to was he able to hear the piece or not? Because he did speak to me.
0: And what did Japanese, he say when he uh, spoke to you?
1: He wasn't just speaking in Japanese, it was through a translator who was saying it was very beautiful, he was so excited to be here, he did a great job, and that's as much as we thought. So we thought he was just you know, hearing impaired and not necessarily fully
0: deaf. Did you hear his speech pattern? Did it sound like somebody with hearing impairment?
1: I did hear his speech pattern, it did not sound like someone with hearing impairment at all. Must- the only thing that I would say that would... I was speaking to my pianist, John Holden, who were rehearsing the piece... It did seem that it was unusual because if you look at the choral piece itself, it's, it's written in two different kind of styles. Some of it is kind of Baroque. Or, you know, so it, it gave me a feeling of like it was written on either two different days or maybe some, you know, some people had some advice to give them because it seems very unusual in the style. It was very neo-romantic and neo-Baroque to me. And if you hear it, you, you'll see that. So I would always ask my pianist, it's interesting where he's going with this.
0: How did his music come to your attention? Because this is not a composer who was at all known in the West.
1: We were invited to sing and, and tour in Japan and to give our Tokyo debut. Now, we've been to Japan several times before. We went in 2005, representing the United States in the 7th World Symposium in Kyoto. And at that time, we were introduced to Japan. So we've been invited since then to give two summer tours of Japan, where we've toured 32 cities. Then this past summer, we were invited to go back to sing with the Tokyo Philharmonic, as well as to give our Tokyo debut at a major concert hall. We had met someone in 2005, Sakamoto, who was a conductor himself and a writer for a a choral journal. He performed the Hiroshima Requiem. He was the only choir to ever perform it. And he asked me, would I perform it as as the second choir only to perform it, and to be an American choir singing it, which we thought was, you know, a little bit overwhelming for us to sing a piece called The Wreck Hiroshima, being that we are American children. So we had agreed to do it when I received the music. I thought the music was quite lovely, and I thought that the concept was incredible. This man was dedicating it to this young boy who had just recently passed away. NHK came to us and gave a whole big interview. We were on television from the United States in Japan saying that we're going to sing this. At one point when we were in Hiroshima, We were in front of the the memorial, in front of the museum. We had sung part of it, and all the children were singing it and dedicating it. And, you know, it was very personal. No one knew we did this. We did that. So the piece became very personal to us because we thought we were becoming part of the culture and understanding what's going on.
0: You said it seemed like it was written in several different styles. What was it musically about the piece that you liked?
1: Musically speaking, it was, it's a very simple piece. There's nothing that would make it stand out as a masterpiece for me. But it was, you know, the vocal writing was fine. It was nice voice leading and it's very pretty. It's very, it was something that would capture the audience's imagination. But if anyone else had given me this piece of music, I would not say, wow, this is a, an incredible piece of music.
0: Are you going to keep this piece in your repertoire now?
1: Well, this is the big question. We were asked to do the American premiere, and we are slated to the American premiere on March 26th here in New York City because a choir from Hiroshima is joining us for a concert. And now we're debating whether we should do it or not, because how do we attribute the piece? And what is your suggestion? Do you think we should do it?
0: I'm not programming your season.
1: (laughs) That is a big question. We're trying to figure out. I have received many emails from Japan asking me to no longer... Uh, perform his piece of music.
0: Really? And yeah. how about the people who are putting on the concert and the, the choir from Hiroshima? What are they saying?
1: We, uh, we haven't asked them because uh, we're going to share a program. They're going to sing their set. We're going to sing our set. They're our invited guests. So, so we are, we're debating it here. Our artistic team is debating it. Would it be insulting? And would it, or would it be, you know, is it just a piece of... The children are saying to me, it's a piece of music we enjoy singing. So musically speaking, it, it's interesting in that way.
0: And you could probably fill your hall just on the controversy around it.
1: <laughs> well, I'm not sure that's the kind of controversy we want to do, but the children are prepared to sing it. We've been working on it. So that is the big decision we, we have to make very soon.
0: And how do the children feel about it now?
1: They're saddened that they were, you know, taken in that way. But at the same time, they, they like the music, and they like they the idea of singing a, a very original piece in Japan. And But I'm not sure how they completely feel. I don't think they actually understand, honestly. Even I don't. I don't actually understand what happened here. You know, so someone is able to deceive so many people for so long. It's just, I'm
0: not sure I understand that. Well, thank you very much for joining us.
1: No, thank you so much, Naomi.
0: Francisco Nunez is the artistic director and founder of the Young People's Chorus of New York City. For two other views on this, we're joined on the line now by Anne Majette, the classical music critic of the Washington Post, and also on the line from England is Richard Elliott, a cultural musicologist at the University of Sussex. He writes for a number of outlets. And you wrote last week that the outrage over Mamoru Samaragochi seems a little overblown, and that there is a long tradition of ghostwriters and collaborations in composition.
2: Well, I feel the outrage is about the personal fraud, the deception, pretending to be deaf, pretending to be a genius. That That is all understandable for people who have dealt with him. If he had been open about the collaboration, I think that there would be no outrage at all because this kind of collaboration is a normal part of the artistic process these days. We readily accept that Jeff Koons is an artist, even though his work is not actually fabricated by him. The word fabricated becomes a double-edged sword and this kind of thing. (laughs) But there are plenty of visual artists and plenty of composers who rely on the creative efforts of others to create their work. What's interesting is that a lot of the excitement or emotion about this work seems to have been tied up with the fictive persona that the composer built up to the point that One is not sure one actually likes the work when it's proven that the composer was not really who he said he was. And that's an interesting comment on celebrity and perception and hype and many other factors. I only heard a bit of the Hiroshima Symphony. I listened to a couple of movements of it. Had you told me that it was recorded by Naxos, written by an obscure composer of the early 20th century, I would have probably bought it. I don't think I would have hailed it as great music, but it was very hard for me to come up with an unbiased reaction, knowing the non-musical history of the piece as I did, um, which gave me pause a bit. Although I must say, I didn't find it an amazing masterpiece. I found it derivative.
0: Richard, what is your response to the whole notion of the outrage versus ghost writers?
3: Well, I was also taken by the response to the story, not just in the way it was reported, but I think even more so just seeing some of the comments that were coming up in in response to some of the stories and um, some were saying well you know does not matter if the piece is good then it was good before and it's still good and it doesn't really alter anything but at the same time we should probably attribute it to the correct composer um, others were taking a, a quite different route and quite often talking about the derivative nature of the music and um, it was a poor copy of Mahler or you know some romantic composer or what have you. I guess also um, I detected maybe that the way in which some commentators were talking about the music as being Mahlerian or maybe naming another composer means that um, in a sense the actual composer, Nigati, um, also isn't the author in, in that kind of discourse as well because the music is then seemed to be a copy or heard to be a copy of uh, something else. So there's a whole kind of layers uh, of this story and this sort of unraveling, really, of the, of the authorship of the work.
0: Yeah, the ghostwriter was a music teacher, lecturer named Takashi Niigaki. Clearly, he didn't have the same flair for self-promotion. And why do you think he put up with this for nearly 20 years for relatively little money compared to what Samaraguchi must have been making?
2: Well, I think it's an interesting reflection on um, exactly what Richard was saying about authorship. In a sense, uh, Niigaki was not the author because he didn't own the work. You know, he was happy to execute what somebody else was dictating to him. I think, and perhaps asterisk here, is that we don't, I don't certainly know exactly what level of celebrity Samaraguchi had in Japan until quite recently. There was a documentary made about him within the last couple of years that got a lot of attention, and that's, I think, when the big recording of the Hiroshima Symphony came up. I think that possibly before that, there was not quite the level of celebrity, and that that was one of the things that got... uh, Niigaki nervous because this whole revelation was prompted by the ghostwriter stepping up and saying, Hey, I, I've been ghostwriting this stuff. Um, and one of the prompts for that was the fact that the Japanese um, figure skater, Daisuke Takahashi, is going to be skating to one of the pieces at the Olympics. And I find it particularly charming almost that the question of authenticity should touch the issue of music in Olympic figure skating. If you want authentic performances of music, I can tell you the Olympics are not the place to look for it. That, that, you know, piano sonatas are turned into orchestrated works and orchestras are thrown into works that have no orchestras at all. But I think another thing this story touches on, really, and I think the reason it's hit this level of sort of prurient semi-hysteria, is that in today's Internet world, people seem to me to be very confused about Ideas of authorship and authenticity. All of the kinds of copyright law and all of the plagiarism cases we've seen touch on different aspects of this. And I think that people are possibly confused by what constitutes self borrowing and copying and have a knee jerk, hysterical reaction to any instance of it now um, without looking to see whether it's really warranted. I mean, the idea that this was fraud. It, on the level of, as I said in my article, if you paint a fake Jackson Pollock and sell it pretending that it's Jackson Pollock, clearly you're committing a fraud. Um, but in this case, these two men working together to create this fictive persona, it's not the same level of fraud because you're not capitalizing off of an established reputation of someone who's dead.
0: Richard, you suggested a parallel to the Millie Vanilli affair in all of this?
3: Well, yes. I mean, it, partly because the Millie Vanilli story is, is, is a kind of classic landmark in, in that story, but there, there are many, many other examples. But um, in popular music, I think it's become kind of accepted uh, on one level that you know what we're hearing is a fabrication, that actually the authorship that goes into making contemporary popular music is authorship that takes place in a recording studio, if that's not too old-fashioned a way of thinking about it, because, of course, it it could be anywhere now, and that that authorship goes, you know, far beyond the composers and the lyricists and involves all kinds of technologists, engineers, producers, mixers. You know, it really is, to use a word that Anne's already used, it really is a process of fabrication. As listeners, we like to listen past all of that stuff. You know, on the one hand, we know that there's there's all these people involved. Um, And on the other hand, I'm sure that, you know, that we like to sort of forget that they're all involved and to think that there's some kind of connection between us and uh, a putative composer or or author, if you like, of the work.
2: Um, Yes, and and um, furthermore, there are arbitrary conventions of what we accept in that, because Milli Vanilli, they lip-synced, how horrifying. And yet anybody who's watched Hollywood musicals Nobody is outraged that Marnie Nixon was Natalie Wood's uncredited voice in West Side Story, that Marilyn Horne was Dorothy Dandridge's uncredited voice in Carmen Jones. Today, of course, voiceovers are credited, but in the old days in Hollywood, they weren't credited. And we don't regard that with anything but a sort of head shrugging, like, oh, well, those old days, they didn't credit those people. So I—Oh yeah.
0: On the other hand, uh, Dorothy Dandridge was not going out on tour with the voice of Marilyn Horne coming out of a loudspeaker behind her and, and singing for live audiences. So there is somewhat no, of a difference. Enough,
2: but true enough, but as far as the suspension of disbelief, the idea of authenticity, I'm not, I'm not justifying Millie Vanilli. I'm just saying that, you know, that people accept certain conventions of when they ought to be horrified and when they <laughs> ought not to
0: be horrified. And you mentioned that the... This actually all came to light because the Japanese figure skater Daisuke Takahashi is going to skate to the Sonatina for a violin by Samara Gochi at the Winter Olympics. Good idea now, bad idea. He's going to do this
2: course you can't re-choreograph your entire olympic routine in a week <laughs> it takes right. those things you know months and months go into preparing those things so in that sense it was kind of unkind particularly since um takahashi has obviously used that music this entire season um of course he should go on with the music and in fact it will be an interesting point of discussion i think in japan it may be seen as a question of shame and pride and and particularly because people really were taken in by this guy for the international audience it will make it you know, a, a question of curiosity and possibly make it more tolerable for those who don't like watching figure skating, but are compelled to do it because other members of their household do like it.
0: Yeah, apparently the Samaraguchi CDs are now being pulled from the shelves in Japanese record stores as publishers not pub- printing the scores anymore. Is this now an overreaction, Richard?
3: Something needs to be done. They They couldn't just carry on one would hope that the music, uh, as it, it it exists, it's been performed and recorded by orchestras, and you know it, it should be out there and it should be available. I guess how it should be uh, labeled and, um, and and marketed is is another question.
0: Francisco Núñez, who performed the music of Samoroguchi when he, he had his choir perform it when they went over there, said that. The composer, or the supposed composer, Samara spoke to them afterwards, his speech did not seem to be the speech of anybody who had a hearing impairment. Does it seem credible that the media never once in all this time questioned this man's story?
2: Well, that's why I say we don't really know how famous he actually was or wasn't, how much media exposure he's had. Clearly there hasn't been that much. There was a Time Magazine article in 2001. Um, so, he's, you know, he's been around. But has he really been a national icon for that long? I can't say. I certainly saw reports that the Japanese media were apologizing for not having uncovered this sooner. Um, it, it is a, uh, uh, may a what, how do you say, it's an indictment of arts journalism in general that I think a lot of arts journalists don't tend to ask beyond the uh, the, the facade. Although, of course, it's very ill-mannered if somebody is, Told if you were told someone is deaf to say, Are you really deaf? Can you hear this? You know? <laughs> but, uh, but as far as the media not having unask- uh, unmasked him in all this time, I'd like to know h- how much media attention he's had and how much time we're talking about.
3: Uh, I mean, there's a, a he issued a statement today, hasn't he? Um, some yes, um, uh, saying that
0: uh, um, saying that his hearing has now improved. Yeah. but that he had been unable to hear when he started paying to have this music written. <laughs> and he now right. says, he's, I, I, he said, I feel deeply ashamed of myself for living a false life. I also apologize to Mr. Nigaki, whose life went wrong because of complying with my demands for 18 years.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, again, you know, I, I was struck by... Um I guess a tone that came through some of the stories that seemed to imply that there was deafness or non-deafness and uh, and no kind of shades in between. And I did feel, well, it would be useful to know maybe a little bit more about that because, um, you know, it could well be that there was um, some kind of serious issue there. You know, I think these things are, e- are easy to uh, to see in hindsight um, and maybe those kind of questions aren't the, aren't the kind of questions that, that are asked um, when there doesn't appear to be a problem. Um, it, and this whole issue of you know attaching a, a name to a work and, um, and a story to a celebrity, et cetera, et cetera, um, only seems to be exposed as the, the problem that it is when it goes wrong.
0: Well, thank you both very much.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Our guests have been Anne Majette, classical music critic of The Washington Post, and... Richard Elliott, lecturer in popular music at the University of Sussex in England. You also heard from Francisco Nunez, the director of the Young People's Chorus of New York. The producer is Brian Wise. You will find links to the articles by Richard Elliott and Anne Majette on our website, wqxr.org. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thanks for listening.